everyone. How are we on our favorite personal development mindset Tuesday class with your professor, me, Laura Catella. Thank you for being here. We have a good one today. Today, we are going to talk about non-negotiables, how to set boundaries, how to prioritize. We'll move through some of the limiting beliefs you may have that has made your non-negotiables fuzzy to you. And I really have to thank the dear client of mine, Whitney Pursuto, who is amazing. And I gave her uh, one of a gazillion prompts, one of which being, tell me 10 non-negotiables. And it's Friday night and she sends me a message. Laura, I'm trying to spend my Friday night partying <laughs> and listing out my non-negotiables and I'm having a hard time figuring out what they are. And that sometimes it's just one thing, right? That can unlock an avalanche of potential creativity for you. And so I did a lot of work diving into, well, how can I help people decode what their non-negotiables are? And to get a little bit ahead of myself, I think one of the challenges is if you receive any help on this matter, folks might ask you, what are your values? Values are abstract though. It might not be easy for you to quickly come up with what your values are, you know, other than things that make any like any human a decent one, integrity, honesty, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, that's all well and good. But how do you break that down into a non-negotiable, a boundary you could set or a habit that you could stick to? I believe there is a more useful way, which we will dive into today. For those of you who don't know, when I look this way, I'm looking at my notes to keep me on track, lest I tangent too many times. One other thing I would like us to do as an extroverted person who becomes energized by the energy of others, if I say something that is useful or impactful or that gives you a little bit of a hit at any time during the class, I would love for you to send a fire emoji in there so that I know what hits when it hits. This might also have the additional benefit of me not having to check in and say, is, are you guys liking this? Is this helpful? So it could keep us in greater flow. And I hope we all get really familiar with the fire emoji and send it a lot. Of course, I hope to give a lot of value. Non-negotiables. So let's talk about the lay of the land. And let me open with a question. Who here has a non-negotiable that they can readily define and say in the chat? Who's got one? And if you don't, you could say, not me, but with no judgment, no judgment. We all go through this, or are we all somewhere in the middle? Carolyn Santo, I don't work with abusive people. Nice. Who else has one? I'm going to be forced to assume that you're not super clear on them if you're not able to put one in. What a useful realization. Lee, I love, honor, and respect myself. Amazing. So important. Ryan, I don't tolerate rude people. Awesome. It's shocking to me how many rude people exist, you know? I'm naive sometimes. I believe that people are inherently not rude, but then sometimes they are, and I'm quite surprised. Lynn, I work in a place where I make my own hours. 
My time being my own is important. Hell yes. Play your game. We love that. We're going to talk about time. She always creeps up time, doesn't she? In just a little bit. So what we're seeing for many of us who did not have a non-negotiable ready to go are opportunities where we're currently falling short on having clarity into what our non-negotiables are, communicating them, and living in accordance with them, making sure our behavior and our actions are aligned with the things we espouse as important to us. There are a lot of beliefs surrounding this, and they may be more conscious for some of you, or they may be more subconscious for some of you that make it challenging to establish, declare, and live up to your non-negotiables, right? Beliefs like saying no means I'm rude, or saying no means I'm selfish. Does that or some iteration of it creep up on you from time to time? Or does it affect you subconsciously? How about this one? If I don't please others, they won't like me. Does that one ever creep up and affect you in one way or another? It affects me sometimes. If I don't please others, they won't like me. Lynn says, too bad. Hell yes. Because we know that the fact of the matter is that says more about them than it does about you, doesn't it? And we have some language to work through that that I'll share in just a little bit. How about this one? I can't have it all. I have to sacrifice something to be successful. Sometimes that plays out. Whether we consciously think it or not, it plays out in one way or another. I can't have it all. I have to sacrifice something to be successful. Sort of related and also sort of the opposite. If I don't say yes, I might miss out. If I don't say yes, I might miss out. Of course, there's an irony there because here's the new question. If you say yes to everything, what do you miss out on? In what ways does saying yes actually lead you to missing out? A loop open worth exploring. And I want you guys to notice this. If you have any patterns of guilt or shame around saying no or around not doing things that you feel like you have to do or that other people ask you to do, If others have guilted you in your life, you have learned how to guilt yourself. We end up saying the things to ourselves that are naysayers, our detractors, the energy vampires in our life have said to us. This is a loop that keeps on fucking occurring. You treat yourself the way your detractors and your saboteurs have treated you. You become your own detractor and your own saboteur. And then other people in your life treat you the way you treat yourself. Other people in your life treat you the way you treat yourself. So when you criticize yourself, what will happen? Those around you will criticize you way more. Whereas if you honor yourself, protect yourself and support yourself, The people around you will do more of that. It's an iteration of Neville Goddard's you, the world is you pushed out. So what are you pushing out? Let's remember though, that these beliefs have their utility. Our process is not about trying to squash them or beat them out of you. 
If we recognize the utility that these beliefs have, we become more empowered and directed and focused on how to take the utility but remove the limitation. So we run them through what I just realized this morning is an acronym, GPS. How do they give, protect, and serve us? How do beliefs like that, like if I don't please people, they won't like me, what does that give me? How does that protect me? And how does it serve me? Any limitation you perceive yourself having in life, run it through this GPS. What does it give you? How does it protect you? And what does it serve you? And there'll be overlap, of course. But what do beliefs like this stand to give you? Acceptance, right? Into the group. How could somebody possibly abandon you if you give them everything that they want? They can't. So you feel like you get that protection out of this, out of not having non-negotiables, out of not setting boundaries. Of course, the problem with this though is you tend to get taken advantage of and you end up feeling like you're running on empty. Who so often feels overwhelmed? I am overwhelmed between work and the responsibilities I have in my family. I am overwhelmed because you're running yourself rampant and you're not putting the self-care that's required for you to more powerfully serve others. Here's another doozy with, with this problem of, well, they can't abandon me if I give them everything that they want. That's mighty disempowering of the people around you. Are you assuming that they cannot do things for themselves? Are you assuming that they need you for everything? That they have no personal responsibility? Because when you show up for other people at your own expense, that is the cycle and the echo chamber that you are creating. You are not allowing people the opportunity to step up and do things for themselves and take personal responsibility. And personal responsibility is a muscle that will make you very powerful in life. You are not a victim. You are not at the mercy of external circumstances. You control what you can. When you do that, others around you will be forced to do it because you're not doing any, everything for them. And they'll be empowered into doing it because they'll want to model you and your behavior. Of course, another problem with, the, with beliefs like they won't like me if I don't do everything for them, if I don't please them. You tend to then attract people who want to remain disempowered. Wouldn't you much rather be around people who are like, oh yeah, I see that you got you, I got me, and let's go. What else do beliefs like this give you? They keep you busy, and we tend to feel important when we're busy, right? I'm so busy. I have so many responsibilities. I'm so important. I'm juggling so many plates. These people need me. I am busy and important. So not saying no gives you that. Okay, cool. We acknowledge that we want those feelings. Staying so busy and being overwhelmed gives you an excuse to not fully go after and be committed to what you want, which can feel risky. If you are committed to going after this one thing and you do not get there in the timeline that you want, or you do not get there in exactly the way that you have defined it, you have also defined what failure is, right? If success is X, then anytime I don't get X, I have failed. But if you stay so busy that you don't have to define X or that you're able to say, well, I can't really go after X because I'm so busy, 
you have insulated yourself against that feeling of failure. A lot of people do this, not very consciously, but this is the reality that they create. They never have to go after X because they're so busy and they would prefer it stay that way. Not you guys though, because you're here on a mindset call for mindset mastery class with your professor me on a Tuesday. You are cut from a different cloth. And so these facts also shine a light on the ways these disempowering feelings, right? If I don't please them, they won't like me and their ilk protect you. It protects you from that abandonment. It protects you from the risk of going after what you want. It protects you from the feeling of missing out. It protects you from the risk you take when you stand out, when you plant a flag in something. And how does it serve you? One way, it keeps you in the familiar. 99.9% of people will choose the familiar even if it sucks. At least they know it. And where this gets really hairy for people like us is that we have a tendency, neurological systems guiding us to choose the familiar, especially if it is decent. That's the fucker, decent. It's decent, should I really take a risk? It's decent, should I really tell this person no and risk rocking the boat? Risk getting them upset with me? I can handle it now. Things are pretty good. So that's one way these thoughts serve us. Now, of course, we come to the flip side of the coin. This is where everybody starts. But without that awareness that enables self-compassion, you look through the GPS and you're able to find opportunities to give yourself some compassion, to look back and tell the little you, the little Bobby, the little Lynn, ah, I see why you've developed this tendency to say yes to everybody. It's okay, I've got it now. Big Lynn has it now. We're gonna modify this behavior and we're gonna shift our beliefs so that modifying the behavior is not a band-aid, but a byproduct of more empowering beliefs. So what does not having non-negotiables cost you? Fulfillment, the fulfillment you stand to feel and have when you go after your thing, where you say no to what is not in alignment with that thing. So often, successful people running successful businesses will say, but I don't feel totally fulfilled. How will you know when you are fulfilled? That's a big motherfucker of a question. And it's one worth keeping open that you continue to revisit. How will you know when you are fulfilled? When blah, blah happens, when I do this, those might be some things worth prioritizing, worth setting up non-negotiables around. How will you know when you're fulfilled? It costs you clarity, of course. Well, I'm saying yes to everybody else. So you don't get the chance to experiment and dabble in and find out what fills you up. It costs you the next step of that, the chance to develop the skills, your ability, your means, and your authority. Because when you start saying no to stuff, you have freed up precious resources, time, energy, bandwidth to develop the skills that will move you closer to your goals, to create opportunities for you to get into that flow state that we looked at last week. There's a good amount of overlap here. In fact, do I have the flow chart, the flow state chart? Let's pull it up. Let's look at it one more time and see how it relates to this topic of non-negotiables. Oh, help me. She's going off the cuff. Can I do it? I can do it. 
it was how we closed last week. So it's at the end of the notes. Here we go. Let's share the screen and look at this chart one more time because it's so dang important. So when you do not have non-negotiables, where are you? High challenge, juggling plates, overwhelmed, doing a bunch of shit, but you're not getting the chance to use your deepest skills. You're not getting your chance to develop them and hone them and practice with them. So you end up up here. Worry, anxiety. These are all cousins to overwhelm, right? So when you stay in overwhelm, what does it cost you? The chance to get over here, to develop the skills that when applied to a challenge you're interested in yields the delicious state of flow, of creation. Hours pass in what feel like minutes. And if you're me, you don't go to the bathroom. <laughs> Let us not rob ourselves of the opportunity to experience this anymore. And we'll dive more into the precious, how do we do that, Laura, in just a little bit. The contrary to flow is your shiny object syndrome loop, which we also looked at last week. So we'll look at it one more time because I have it on this week's notes. Here's where it keeps putting you. I'm going to say yes to this. I'm going to try this. I'm going to do this. Oh God, I'm overwhelmed. All right, let me just go back and add something else to the plate and do it again. So you get stuck in this loop and people who say they have 30 years of experience sometimes just have this one year repeated over and over and over again. These are all of the, the factors, the consequences, what is at play and what is at stake without deciphering and declaring with power what your non-negotiables are and without living in alignment with them. So for any of you who have any iteration of those nagging, sneaky, sinister, disempowering beliefs, how do we shift them? It's a lot of the work we do together, but here's a very straightforward approach you can use to begin to shift that or any other limiting belief. Can we look for evidence to the contrary? Because evidence to the contrary always exists. Our brains are really, really good at finding evidence to support what we already believe. But can we simply ask our brain, can you do me a favor and find me some evidence to the contrary? Can you find evidence that people establish non-negotiables and still become successful? Of course. Can you find evidence that people establish non-negotiables and still receive love and acceptance? Of course you can. And in fact, even more so. It's not an exception to the rule that people with non-negotiables are successful. They tend to be more successful and they are the types who are more likely to be successful. It's not that people with non-negotiables can sometimes get love, they're more likely to get the love that truly fills them up. Love that comes from a state of support. And those who are around them become empowered in turn. One, because you've given them the opportunity to do so. And two, because they see it in you and they want to mirror it. And here is your delicious irony loop that you could use to your advantage. You establish non-negotiables for yourself and other people benefit. You wanna help people? Set up your non-negotiables, communicate them and live in alignment with them. You want to help other people help yourself do that. You get your precious, but I really want to help others. I want to be so selfless, help others by being selfful, especially your children. Anyone with kids ever have the concern? Oh man, I don't want my kids like to be a doormat. 
I don't want them to lack confidence. I don't want them to people please. You don't want that for your kids, right? But your kids will do what they see you do. So you have to do it. So here you go. You don't have to do it for yourself. (laughs) Do it for them. If that helps you actually do it. This stuff is pretty important to me. And I had a crazy experience early on in my life that, oh God, it's embarrassing. But it made crystal clear that I had no non-negotiables early on in my life. And that was when I met Neil Strauss. Who's familiar with Neil Strauss? New York Times bestselling author, uh, I think for a few different books. This was in like 2009 and The Game, his book on seduction and pickup artists and all that stuff, you know, was all the rage. And the pickup artists had their own reality shows and guys were going out there wearing hats with big feathers on them, acting all crazy, called peacocking, doing all this stuff to get the attention of, of women. And he slipped into my DMs, actually, on MySpace, Neil Strauss, because of a blog post I wrote about love. Anyway, I end up meeting Neil Strauss, and Neil Strauss asks me, what are your deal breakers in a relationship? And I was like, oh, shit, I don't know. Like, that's what I said in my head. And here's what Neil Strauss did not know. I had a boyfriend, and just a few weeks prior to meeting him, my boyfriend had punched me in the face, and I didn't leave him. And I had a black eye and I had to show up to work with a black eye and I got fired from that job because I showed up with a black eye and that was not professional. I was customer facing. And I did not leave that asshole yet, which I, of course, felt a good amount of shame surrounding the whole thing. And then here is Neil Strauss asking me what my deal breakers are in a relationship. And I have to look myself in the face and realize, oh shit, I don't have any. And so what do I muster up to say as an answer? I go, ironically, I'm like, definitely no physical abuse. And he's like, no shit, no physical abuse. (laughs) That ain't no kind of deal breaker. (laughs) That doesn't count. (laughs) Being treated like a decent human does not count as a deal breaker. And that moment changed my life forever. It was one of those paradigm shifting moments where I realized I had no deal breakers. I'm tolerating bullshit. No wonder my life at this time feels like it's full of bullshit. I'm tolerating it all. And so I pose that question to all of you today. What are your deal breakers in a relationship? And not the obvious ones. (laughs) Not definitely no physical abuse. Your deal breakers in a relationship could be so deliciously selective as to say, if he chews with his mouth open, it's a no. You have that power. You can do that. And when you do that, you have created filters for yourself that make decision-making so much easier. Boom. Hundreds of thousands of people eliminated. Thank God. (laughs) Because they chew with their mouth open. It does not make you an asshole. And if you feel like, well, if I acted like that, doesn't that make me a little bit of an asshole? Those are the disempowering beliefs that we opened up with. What if it was entirely okay for you to have a non-negotiable like that? Just for fun. This is a hypothetical. What if it was? How would you live your life? How much more heightened would your self-concept become? I am somebody who deserves this. I am not somebody who just accepts anything from anyone. I am that type of person. How will that have a ripple effect over the whole rest of your life? If you saw yourself as the person worthy of establishing non-negotiables like this, 
So non-negotiables will give you the filters to make decision-making so much easier. And they'll be so beautifully unique to you, part of the tapestry of you, that they're like your fingerprint. Because your non-negotiables are and will be made up from your unique DNA, your unique disposition, and your unique experiences in life that have led you to come to the conclusion, ah, this is what's important to me, this is what I value, and this is what I will not tolerate. So they're so beautifully and uniquely you, it would be a bummer to miss out on that. In addition to those limiting beliefs that hold us back from establishing non-negotiables like that, there's another one, and it's a real doozy that I don't see many people talk about. Humans are very, very good at miswanting. We tend to want things that will not end up making us super duper happy. And when we miswant, we misprioritize. What do, what do I mean? Let's, let's move the floor over to you guys. What do you think will make you super happy? Let me know some answers in the chat. What do you want? What do you think will make you happy? Let me hear some. So I have material. Money. Yep. That's the number one answer, especially for our group. <laughs> if you ask like high-performing college kids this, they'll say money, good grades. Travel. Katie, that's a good answer. Freedom, mainly financial. Tea on the table. Some of you have answers in there that will tend to lead to happiness. But of course, money. Money, 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 money. Yes, money. We think having a lot of money will make us super duper happy. But let me show you something. So many studies have been done and over and over and over again, what do we find? Once you get to a certain level of income, and this changes with time, it adjusts with inflation, sure. But the marginal increase in happiness and life satisfaction always trails off at a certain point. You simply get to the place where another $10,000 will not make you much happier. And I know what you're thinking. Yeah, Laura, I get it on average, but not me, <laughs> not me, I'm a little bit different. It'll make me much happier. That's a bias, that's a cognitive bias. What if, just as a thought experiment, just for fun, what if it was you two? What if it was also you? That once you get to a level of comfort and of course your needs are met, yes, we need all of that. That's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? We need a certain level of income for our needs to be met and for us to feel safe should something bad happen or should something we don't anticipate occur, absolutely. And what if, just for fun, you realized, huh, I think earning so much more money will make me happy, but what if it wasn't that as a thought experiment? If it wasn't a boatload more money that made me happy, what would it be that actually makes me happy, that improves my feelings of fulfillment and well-being? The money miswanting has so many other biases wrapped up in it. We will do a full-on future masterclass about it. But one of the most persistent ones is our brain's ability, it's so good at this, at latching on to very salient, but not useful reference points, especially for groups like this. You hang out with a bunch of entrepreneurs and what will you tend to think? Having a successful business will make me happy. Having a successful business is the end all and be all. I wish it were true, 
But you see a lot of people with wildly successful businesses and they don't feel entirely happy. Something is still off. Something is still missing. Another bias that affects this is as soon as you get some more money, what do you want? More money. Ooh, I had a good month. I want more next month. Immediately. Our brains are so good at that. And that's why the money miss wanting, she's a tough one. And for us in our spaces, it's something we got to work through in an ongoing fashion. There's no super quick life-changing fix necessarily, but the awareness of it should be really helpful. So when I talk about setting up non-negotiables, many of you might've felt, ooh, I need to set up non-negotiables to help me make more money. And yeah, you could, you probably should. We run businesses, right? (laughs) I'm here to also help you make money. So yes, that is all fine. But what we also need to set up non-negotiables for are around the things that will make us feel more happy, (laughs) that will improve our sense of well-being. And that'll be the rising tide that lifts all boats. When will you know you're fulfilled? That was one of the questions I posed to you earlier. When will you know you're fulfilled? Did any of you think when I have X amount of dollars, that's when I'll know I'm fulfilled? Probably not. That's why that question helps shine a light on areas worth prioritizing. Another thing most people tend to miswant, love, love, right? Well, I think when I find the love of my life, then I'll be happy. (laughs) Then I'll really have it. But there have been a ton of studies that have shown they're kind of hilarious. When people get married, yes, they are happier. Their feelings of well-being increase for about two years. (laughs) And then they go right back to baseline. We have a new salient reference point. When we're not in love, right? We're looking at love and we're like, ooh, when I have that, that'll make me happy. When you get that for two years, (laughs) you have it. So you're looking in a new direction. So even love doesn't fill up the happiness meter. What about having a perfect body? When I get a perfect body, I'll feel happy. Nope, not that one either. In fact, studies have shown that those who diet and reach a goal weight are unhappier than when they started. It's mind boggling. People who have plastic surgery, correlations show way more prone to depression sadness, not feeling fulfilled. Now, I'm not saying that's a causation thing, you know? It could be that the type of person who wants plastic surgery just generally does not feel that happy with themselves might be true, but either way. So if you're telling yourself, when I get the perfect body, I'll be happy. No, probably not. These are all loops I'm opening with you guys that we're gonna dive into more deeply in the future. What has been scientifically shown to actually increase feelings of well-being and happiness. Number one, the feeling of time affluence. I have time. This is why one of my quotes, normalize saying, I have time. You cannot change the number of hours in the day. You can only change your perception of them. So I'm on a call with Alyssa Dillon the other day. I love Alyssa so much. She's the one who inspired me to do these classes actually. So if you've gotten value out of them, you could also thank Alyssa. I'm on a call with Alyssa Dillon the other day. I say, I'm not so happy with my ads guy. Sidebar story of my life. If I had a (laughs) a dollar in the jar for every time I said, I'm not so happy with my ads guy, I'd have a good amount of dollars. It's neither here nor there for now. I tell her, I'm not happy with my ads guy. I'm probably going to go in and just make a campaign that beats him, you know? (laughs) And she goes, how do you find the time? What's the answer? I have time. 
That's how I find the time because I have it. It's mine to find. Normalize saying I have time. You will feel better. You will feel happier. So feelings of time affluence will improve your well-being. So it may be worth establishing some non-negotiables designed to get you that. What else improves your feelings of well-being? Using your skills towards your passions. Getting into the flow state. Of course it feels good to be in flow state. That's why we pursue it, right? And now us, we have some ways and some ideas on how to engineer that. We can in fact create it for ourselves. If we know that we're using our skills towards a challenge that we care about. So doing that more often will make you feel good. Might be worth setting up some non-negotiables in alignment with that. Social connection helps us feel good. Probably not a big surprise. We're social creatures. It's deeply embedded in us, even for the introverts to pursue social connection, perhaps just in a different way (laughs) than the extroverts might like to do it. There's a really fun study I read about where the researchers asked people who were about to get on the subway in Chicago, hey, can you drum up some conversation with a stranger? And they were like, okay. They're like, we'll give you a Starbucks gift card. They're like, all right, I'll do it for the gift card. But before they embarked on having these conversations with a stranger, the researchers asked them, how much do you think you're going to enjoy this? And they all said, oh, I'm going to hate it, right? It's going to suck. It's going to be awkward. I'm going to bother this person. They're going to think I'm weird. It's going to be miserable. And they so grossly mispredicted how that experience was going to go. They universally, to a very, very high percentage, reported feeling so good after. Actually, I feel really great afterwards. And here's the other nugget to it. Those researchers also surveyed the people who got brought into conversation right? The strangers. And they asked them, how do you feel after having a chat with a stranger? They said, I feel good. So should you think that opening up a dialogue with a stranger, like they're not going to like it, they're going to like it and you're going to like it. And maybe you've had experiences in your life where you notice this. You had a quick chat with the barista behind the counter, the guy handing you your coffee, your waiter, somebody in the checkout line, whatever. You're like, huh, I like feel a little good now after that right? Who's experienced that? Can you set up some non-negotiables designed to increase your social connectedness? Might be worth prioritizing. Presentness, ability to be in the moment, to look around you, to actively listen, to be attentive with your kids, all of that shown to increase happiness. Makes sense. You're not paying attention to the swirl of thoughts and the overwhelm in your head, but you're present. You feel good and it connects to time affluence, right? I have the time to be present. So what are some non-negotiables you could create to help yield more presentness in your life? Quick aside, people like to teach mindfulness to help you get present. If useful, great. Not my favorite approach, because <laughs> it biases more. How do I be more mindful? A useful inversion. How can you be less distracted? How can you be less overwhelmed? Your mind is full enough. What do I have to shed so that I'm not so distracted and so I'm more present? It might get you more clarity and better defined action steps that you can actually stick to. So non-negotiables surrounding presentness could be helpful to you. The last one, healthy practices, of course. Improve your well-being. Exercise, sleep, 
movement. Think about these though, with the same inversion, not necessarily how do I exercise more? How do you sit less? Easier question, right? How do you sit just a little bit less? Worth establishing some non-negotiables that could yield you more healthy practices. Line all of this up with who you are, your proclivities, your desires, your game. Is it a good thing to be more of who you are? Yes, we could agree, right? We feel better when we're more of who we are. But what did I just say? That bias is more, right? So how else can we achieve it? Be less of who you are not. If you were to be less of who you are not, what would you shed? What could simply go away? Be less of who you are not. My other favorite example of using inversion to help us get more clarity and to potentially help direct us, our behavior, direct our behavior and direct our action, more discipline. Oh my God. Why do people ask for this? How do I get more disciplined? Why the fuck do you want more discipline? Sounds like a drag. It hasn't worked for you so far, has it? And maybe there are ways it has worked. Okay, great. But for the areas where it is still not working, stop trying to pile on more discipline. Instead, ask yourself, how could I be less impulsive? How could I be less impulsive? Way more pleasant than stacking on more discipline. So you can use your non-negotiables to help you identify what you are not and say no to it. And when you tailor some of these non-negotiables towards what is worth wanting, towards what is proven to improve your well-being, you might find that it's so much easier to define them, to declare them, and to live in alignment with them versus setting up a whole bunch of non-negotiables around how to make more money around the things that we miss want. But if your non-negotiables are about presentness, social connection, time affluence, you might find them way easier to live up to. So the nitty gritty to help you guys really define the non-negotiables that are so uniquely, divinely, and irrepeatably you. Again, most people will open with a question. What are your values? Abstract, big, challenging to answer. Instead, let's look at your experiences to find the clues of what your values are and what's important to you. I'm going to give you some questions. Resist the urge. Oh, I got to answer that question so fast. It's not, not that type of classroom, right? You take the question, you leave the container open, you leave the loop open. Other answers will make their way to you. When was the last time you experienced a moment of true joy? What were you doing and who were you with? And you could have one moment, you could have 10, whatever, whatever your unique, beautiful answer is. When was the last time you experienced a moment of true joy? That might help you identify the experiences and the people worth prioritizing. If you think about who is the person with which I experience the most joy, are you prioritizing spending time with them? Are you prioritizing giving them a phone call? Because sometimes those are the people we take for most granted, right? And we grease the squeaky wheel. We grease the annoying person. Let's flip that. Let's set up a non-negotiable around it. Here's another question. Describe a moment where you felt confident and in control. What was the situation? What did it teach you about yourself? You might have one moment that comes to mind. You might have 10. You might have none yet, but one will come to you later when you're in the shower. If you're in the shower, (laughs) this image will reveal itself to you. A time where you felt confident and in control. 
What were you doing? What did it teach you about yourself? That might help you identify some of your skills and some of the experiences worth prioritizing. But we'll tend to look at the things we're bad at and focus on them. That doesn't feel very good. Here's another question. What is a pain that you carry that you feel like no one really understands? What's a pain or a fear or a doubt that you carry around with you that you feel like most other people just aren't really going to fully understand it? You're just not going to totally get it. That will help you identify areas of self-care, areas of potential growth that it might be worth prioritizing, right? And here's one more. What is a regret, maybe even a big one? What is a big regret you have in your life so far? That'll help you identify areas related to personal growth, right? Opportunities to grow so that you don't live in that regret again. Opportunities around your unique disposition with regards to risk-taking might shed some light on where you now realize, oh, it's worth it for me to take a little bit more of a risk here because I regretted not doing that in the past. And it'll shed some light on passions that you have that it might be worth prioritizing. So what's a regret that you have? That could yield a lot of stuff for you. And it could yield a lot that you could say no to, things that are not those. (laughs) Things that don't give you the opportunity for growth in that capacity. Things that don't yield more connectedness with the people you mentioned and that you thought about. Things that don't put you in those states where you are confident, where you feel joy, where you feel fulfilled. A whole lot more stuff for you to say no to. And you might create the concern in your head that other people will reject, question, or give you a hard time about these. You may create the concern that people will give you a hard time if you say no to everything that is not that. Can you at least give them the chance to actually give you a hard time? Can you at least do the thing, say no, prioritize what you want, and give them the chance to respond? Can you stop making the decisions for them? Can you stop modifying your behavior out of something you have fabricated in your head? Can you let somebody else step up and declare their personal responsibility if they have a problem with what you do? Can you give them the chance to communicate that to you? Or are you going to keep trying to solve for everybody else when they haven't even expressed a concern to you? Can you simply give them the chance and stop making it up in your head? Yes? You could do that, right? The people who love you in your life love you. They love you. They want it for you. And if they don't, we get insight about them, right? I think it was Bobby, right? Bobby said it yesterday in the group. Whoever doesn't want you to put yourself first benefits by you putting yourself last. Did those people come up? When you thought of a moment you experienced joy and who you were with, probably not. So it's not worth prioritizing them, is it? But if somebody you love, if somebody you are in a relationship with, because when you start to do this, they might notice changes in you. And that might cause some people in your life to feel a little bit scared. Like maybe you're abandoning them. Like maybe you're leaving them. And if you're in deep relationship with them and you care about them, there are ways to communicate about this that strengthens the entire relationship. And my favorite approach is asking questions. And you could revisit our class on empowered communication because I gave a lot of prompts and sentence structures you could use for stuff like this. But one, you have committed to seeing, let me do the thing, let me declare what is important to me, and then let me see how they respond. 
before I try to modify myself based on how I assume, based on how I fear they're going to respond because of all my programming. You've already committed to doing that. And then if somebody is like, oh, I don't, I don't like you doing that. Or if they're arguing with you or you're feeling some tension and some resistance, here are questions you can ask them. It seems like you're feeling upset because I blank, right? It seems like you're feeling upset because I prioritize this. It seems like you're feeling upset because I said no to that. Can you tell me more about what's behind that emotion, right? There's really useful stuff in the phrasing of that. The it seems like, it seems like, it sounds like, I'm hearing, you're not blaming them for anything, right? You're not accusing them of anything. You're telling them your perspective and your interpretation. So it's an emotionally calm environment where they can feel safe to really dig into what's going on here. It also shows that you care, right? You're letting them know you care in a way that doesn't edit you out of the equation. So we can ask a question like that. Another iteration, just so you have multiple words in your toolbox. I want to make sure I understand you correctly. It's important to me that I understand how you feel. Are you saying that me blank is causing you to feel unsupported? Because that's where those fears and resistance that you might not ever fucking encounter, first of all, (laughs) most likely you never actually encounter it. But if you do, that would come from the other party feeling like unsupported now, right? That you're deprioritizing them in the interest of something else. So you get them to open up and clarify what they mean. And you guys could come into alignment. Questions like this, so much better, right? For you, for them, and for the relationship versus you feel like somebody is acting upset. What might you do? Backtrack, right? Go back on your non-negotiable, make an exception. This, oh, this person I love, they kind of looked at me funny when I told them no. Never mind, never mind, I'll do it. Never mind, I'll do it. You just broke your own non-negotiable. It's going to hurt your confidence, right? You'll build up resentment for yourself and for the other person. No bueno. Instead, you could ask these questions and get more to the heart of the matter. And asking these questions will show people that you do still support them and that you care about them. Way better than editing yourself, going back on what you say, or trying to over-explain. You don't need to over-explain. The over-explain itch comes from all of the programming that has taught us, oh, I have to make sure I'm perfectly understood or else they're going to reject me, or else they're not going to like me, or else I'm going to miss out on something. That is where your over-explain urge comes from. But as you step up, as you become more healed, as you're able to look back at little Maria and say, I understand why you have this urge (laughs) to over-explain. And I'm not saying you do, but as an example. And it's okay. I got it now. Big Maria has it now. We're okay. Your over-explaining will simply begin to go away. And you don't need to do it. And it's ineffective. It's not, it doesn't serve what you most want. Instead, asking the question to the other party is what helps both of you the most. Not you over explaining, oh, I'm doing this because this is important to me and this and that. And if, if I do this, they'll get this and it'll really help us. Now you're just trying to convince somebody. But what is actually going to give them conviction, right? Them seeing it from you, your embodiment, and them seeing that you care about them which you don't prove by over-explaining, do you? When you over-explain, you, you prove that you care about yourself. When you ask them stuff, you prove that you care about them. And so if it ever occurs that you feel resistance, you will get clarity that it even exists. Because what you might find when you ask a question like, 
It seems like blah, blah, blah. You know, do I have that right? They may be like, oh, no, no. I just have a bit of indigestion and my tummy is upset. I love what you're doing. Go for it. May occur. So create the opportunity for you to get that insight into reality instead of the concerns we create in our own head. That wraps up the lecture for today. I love you all so super duper much. We will convene in the Facebook group and I will see you all next week on one of my favorite hours of the week. Thank you. You're one of one. I'll see you next week.